remember back six weeks ago, I did a study on Acts 15 and called it, What Must I Do to Be Saved? Well, this is going to be a continuation of that study, except this morning we're going to look at Acts 11. You know, this question about how to be saved poses a critical issue. You know, we can be wrong about a lot of things, but we don't want to be wrong here. Okay, we can have disagreements on a lot of different things about Scripture, but when it comes to salvation, we want to make sure we're straight on that, alright? You know, within churchianity, there's a myriad of voices telling us all kinds of different things about what we must do to be saved. Um, Friday, I read a post on Facebook from a pastor. Now, don't get your theology from Facebook, okay? That's, that's not a good place to develop your theology. But here's what this pastor said. He said, considering baptism is essential in order to be saved. And he quotes Acts 2, or 22.16, 1 Peter 3.21. He goes, there is only one correct baptism. Okay, so far I could almost agree with that. Okay, there's, there's one baptism. And then he says this, the only baptism that God will accept today is water baptism. So he says, listen, the only way you're going to be saved is if you're water baptized. See, all these different opinions on what saves us can be very confusing, very frustrating for someone who's seeking to know the truth. Acts 11, like Acts 15, is one of those texts in Scripture that makes it very clear what a person has to do to be saved. Now, what's interesting about Acts 11 is it's actually a recap of Acts 10. You don't get that very often, okay? But in Acts 10, Luke, the historian, is giving us this account of the first Gentile conversion. Alright? Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, in chapter 9, something real significant happens. Up till chapter 9, we have only Jews getting saved. And then in chapter 9, what happens? Someone very famous gets saved. Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, And then in chapter 10, we have the first Gentile conversion. And so we have this, and then in chapter 11, it's kind of a recap. Peter's giving his account of what Luke said in 10. So he does this twice, which is very important. In other words, this is Gentile salvation. It's important to get what's going on here. In chapter 10, Yahweh sovereignly orchestrates the events to bring together a Jew, Peter, and a Gentile, Cornelius, so that this Gentile might hear the gospel and be saved. And like I said, this is the beginning. We've been through, you know, you go through Acts 9 chapters, and now in chapter 10 we have Gentiles coming into the faith. It was always God's purpose to do that. Cornelius is told by an angel to go get Peter, which, of course, if an angel tells you to do something, he does it. He immediately does, and upon his arrival, Peter finds this large group of Gentiles gathered together in Cornelius' house, all waiting to hear the words which God had promised to speak through him, words which would inform them on what they must believe in order to be saved. So Peter begins to share the gospel with them, and while he's speaking with them, the Spirit of God falls on the Gentiles who had gathered, and they become Christians. Peter shares the gospel with them, and they believe it, and the Spirit fell on them, baptizing them into the body of Christ. Now that is a baptism that is essential. It's the baptism of the Spirit who brings us into the body of Christ. Now since these folks are now saints, Peter commanded them to be baptized by the... Those who were baptized by the Spirit, he commanded them to be baptized in water. 
And Peter stayed on at Caesarea for a short time, which I'm sure he would have been instructing them, teaching these new Gentile believers in the Word of God. And after this short stay, he heads home to Jerusalem. And this is where our text begins in Acts 11.1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So the word about this Gentile conversion, which again, this is a new thing. Well, they heard about it even before Peter gets back to Jerusalem. This radical news traveled fast. Hey, Gentiles are getting saved. So you would think that they would say, praise God, Peter. God is using you to bring salvation to the Gentiles. But that's not what happened. All right? He didn't get a warm welcome when he got to Jerusalem. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. What are they taking issue with? I mean, Peter, you're... Preaching the gospel, people are getting saved. The words took issue here are from the Greek diakrino. It means to have a dispute, to withdraw from, to desert, to separate oneself in a hostile spirit or to oppose. They're opposing Peter because he's preaching the gospel. Now I want you to notice here that this opposition is not coming from unbelieving Jews who sought to protect Judaism from the influences of Christianity. This opposition came from none other than the saints. Verse 1 says, the brethren. And then in verse 2, he says, those who were circumcised. This refers to Jewish Christians, not unsaved Jews. More than this, it appears to have come from the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, including Peter's colleagues, the apostles. So the believers in Jerusalem, they're hostile to Peter. Why? What are they upset about? He's preaching the gospel. Verse 3 says, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. That's serious. Now you understand, right? Eating with unbelievers. That's ridiculous, all right? This is the charge against Peter. You who are supposed to be a faithful Jew, you associated, you even ate with Gentiles. This offended these Christian Jews, and so they contend with Peter. Apparently, Peter ate with his host while he was there, although Luke doesn't tell us that in chapter 10. Now, Here's the issue. No Jew would think of going into a Gentile home, much less eating with Gentiles. We've talked about this before. Gentiles had cooties, okay, to the Jews. All right, you didn't want to associate them. You didn't want to, you, you would con- contract ceremonial defilement, all right, if you got too close to these people. Now, here's the thing. Yeshua had clearly told the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature But in their centuries-old Jewish way of thinking, the disciples thought he meant other Jews. Go and preach to other Jews that were scattered all along the world. Certainly he wasn't talking about bringing the gospel to Gentiles. But the thought of preaching to Gentiles, and those Gentiles coming to salvation without first becoming religious Jews was unthinkable. They just, that was, no, you can't do that. Now, just a few weeks earlier, Peter felt the same exact way about Gentiles as these men did. Notice Peter's first words to Cornelius and his friends. This is interesting. You know, you wouldn't learn this in an evangelism class, okay? But he gets there and he goes, and he said to them, these are the Gentiles he shows up to preach to, you yourselves know how it is unlawful for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. You guys know I'm not allowed to hang out with you, you know? But, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. 
That's kind of, it's like you, you would be offended, wouldn't you, if you were a Gentile? You know, I'm not allowed to hang around with you guys, but, you know, God told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. The word unlawful here is from the Greek word athemitas, and it emphasizes the violation of established order. It really means taboo. In other words, the old covenant ceremonial law didn't say it was unlawful for Jews to keep company with Gentiles. The rabbis added that. And see, that's the problem. The rabbis were always building fences around the law of God. The law says this, so, so you don't do that. We'll add this law and this law and this law, so we keep you way far away from breaking a real law. So there's just a bunch of stuff that they throw out there, fences they build to keep you away. The rabbi said that going into a Gentile home resulted in a seven-day defilement. So normally a Jew, if he had to talk to a Gentile, he'd wait outside. Call them, can you come outside and we can talk? Because he wouldn't go want to go in that home and get defiled and then go through a seven-day thing of you know being cleansed after that. The same taboo that bothered Peter was now bothering the Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. The prejudice from which Peter had been delivered was still preying on their hearts and mind, including the other apostles there. See, they're all circumcised Jews who, like Peter, had kept the Moses dietary, the Mosaic dietary laws, really all the laws. And if Peter had to see a vision and hear directly from God to, you know, kind of overcome this prejudice, it's reasonable that these people needed some assistance too to overcome this prejudice that they had against Gentiles. And they just didn't have all the facts of the story, so Peter's kind of explaining them, he's filling them in, and once they understand what's really going on, they, they seem to be fine with it. As we look at the incident, it's important to recognize that this questioning of Peter, this, these other people questioning Peter on what he's doing, that's a valid scriptural procedure. In other words, someone comes with something and you don't think that lines up, well then you start questioning, you know, the Tanakh made it incumbent upon God's people to check out any instance where it appeared that God's law had been broken. And we don't do this at all today. You know, people violate the law of God, and we're like, oh, whatever, you know, because we accept, we tolerate everything. But Deuteronomy 13, 14 says, Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. And if it is true that the matter established that the abominations has been done among you. So, you know, you find out, that is this really true? So they're questioning Peter, is this true? Did you really do this thing? They made no exception for Peter even though he was about to become the first pope, right? They still questioned him, you know? They questioned his actions because they thought he was violating Scripture. See, it just got to the point, you, they didn't really know what was Scripture or what wasn't. They had so many things to it. So these believing Jews should have known it was always God's plan to save the Gentiles. This shouldn't have surprised them in the least bit, but their prejudice blocked them from seeing it. God foretold the Gentile salvation. Luke 2.32 says, The light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. Here Simeon spoke of Yeshua as a light of revelation to the Gentiles, which was a citation of Isaiah 42.6. Now what's interesting in Luke chapter 4, when Yeshua was welcomed by his own people at the synagogue in Nazareth, he made it clear during his talk with them that salvation had come, and it was for Gentiles also. Well, things were going good until he brought that up. And then they wanted to kill him. I mean, that's how they felt. What, Gentiles are getting in on what we have? And then they want, you know, they're angry about it, because they just didn't see that. 
Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and will bring forth justice to the nations. Here Simeon speaks of Yeshua as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And then in, in 42.1, he is called the servant. The servant here is Yeshua. And notice that it's he, it's Yeshua, who's to bring justice to the nations, the ethne, the Gentiles. Yeshua actually quotes this of himself in Matthew 12.28. It says, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This is the establishment of the kingdom of God and it involves calling the Gentiles to salvation. God prophesied His purpose to Abraham in the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 10, you have the table of nations. In Genesis chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, God basically says, I'm done with you Gentiles. I'm done with you people. I'm tired of you constantly breaking my rules. You don't listen to me. You don't serve me. You want to serve these other gods. So God just disassociates all the peoples of the earth. says, I'm done with you. And then in chapter 12, he calls Abraham. and He says, I'm going to start over with a new people. I'm going to start over with Abraham. But even as he disassociates them and starts with a new people, he makes it very clear, I'm going to go back and get those Gentiles. All right, I'm going to call them back. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God told him, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Genesis 22-18. The seed of Abraham was not just the Jewish race, but specifically it was Yeshua. It was God's promised Redeemer. Now in the last book of the Bible, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb and they sing this. They sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou was slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people, and nation. God's purpose is to glorify Himself through the salvation of His elect from every nation through the seed of Abraham, Yeshua. Now the apostles knew this, and so did Yeshua's disciples, so why all the fuss about Gentiles being saved? I mean, they knew the Word of God. They knew these people were going to come in, so why do they get upset about it? Well, most Jewish believers held the position that the Gentiles can come in, but they got to be circumcised before they enter the church. they got to become Jewish, then they can be saved. You know, circumcision was the most important Jewish tradition. It was the badge. I mean, it was such a, a badge that they believed if a Jew was so bad that God had to send him to hell, there was an angel at the gate of hell to undo his circumcision before he could go to hell. Okay, because if you're circumcised, you're good. So they figure, you messed up, we got to take that away so you can go to hell. All right? So these Jewish believers wanted to keep that tradition in the church. So when Peter arrives back in Jerusalem, he says, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Now, those who were circumcised came to contend with him. They wanted to fight with him about this. Let's talk for a minute about the term here, circumcised. As it developed down through the history of Israel and even in the time of our Lord, it became very clear that the circumcision was a title, a technical designation for the children of Israel. Jews were synonymously called the circumcision. That's what they were. There are many passages in Acts or some in Paul's letters, which instead of saying Israel or instead of saying the Jews, they simply call them the circumcision. 
in Acts 10, uh, which we're going over in 11, it says, And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed. The circumcised believers. Those are Jewish believers. They're amazed because Gentiles are getting saved. They're astonished. The Holy Spirit's falling on Gentiles. In verse 2 and 3, it says, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, the Jewish believers, took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised. That's Gentiles. You went to Gentiles. That's not right. Romans 3.30, Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, through faith, is one. So it's just simply a designation to call out Israel. The uncircumcised were Gentiles and the circumcised were Jews. Look at Ephesians 2.11. Therefore remember that formerly you were Gentiles in the flesh, which are called uncircumcision. Gentiles are called uncircumcision by the so-called, I love that he throws, so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. In Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greeting and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, and also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are, the only fellow, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. These are the Jewish believers. It's a technical designation for Israel. Now, with that in mind, look at what Paul says in Philippians. This is such a significant passage here. He says, Beware of dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Yeshua, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now notice what Paul tells us here. He says these Jews are really not the circumcision. They claim to be, but they're not. He says they're in fact mutilators. The word false circumcision in verse 2 is a play on words in the Greek here with the word circumcision in verse 3. The word he uses here is katatome and peritome. Katatome means to mutilate. So he's calling them, you're the mutilators. Because what you're doing has no value. You're just mutilating somebody. You're the mutilators. Paul's saying to these Jews, you think you're the peritome, but you're the katatome. You're the mutilators. You're the mutilation party. Paul tells us in verse 3, he says, we are, speaking of believers, we are the true Circumcision, and I love what he says here. This is this is this is the definition of a believer here. We're this true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God. It's a spiritual thing. We worship spiritually. We glory in Christ Yeshua, and we put no confidence in the flesh. That's a believer. We have no confidence in our flesh. We rejoice only in Christ, and we worship in the spirit. It's a spiritual thing. It's not a physical worship. We don't have to go to a special place to a special temple. It's a matter of circumcision of the heart. So Paul taught that the Gentiles in the church share in the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant of Israel. In Ephesians 2.11, therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles in the flesh who were called on circumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So they were Gentiles, uncircumcised. Jews are called the circumcision. And in verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. What is at that time of verse 12? Well, prior to Christ's first advent, they're without hope because they're separated from Israel. They're alienated from Israel. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Yeshua, you who were formerly far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. They're brought near to what? They're brought near to the commonwealth of Israel, to the covenants and the promises. It says in verse 14, For he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Boy, this is tough for Jews to, to buy. It's tough for Gentiles to buy, that they're being brought into the same church together by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments. The law separated Jew and Gentile. You know, Gentiles couldn't join with Jews because the law separated them ceremonially, ritually. They couldn't be the same. But this was torn down that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. The new man is the believer. He is brought into this relationship. It says in verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Verse 19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Talking to the Gentiles. You're not separated anymore. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and God's household. Believing Gentiles have been admitted, admitted as citizens into the commonwealth of Israel. We partake of their promises and their blessings. We believers are the true circumcision, the true Israel. It's amazing that he would take a designation that was given to Israel and he applies it to the church. We're it. We're the true circumcision. Verse 4, it says, But Peter speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence. In other words, Peter starts laying it out to them, orderly, or just the way it happened. He says, let me tell you what happened here, guys. The details repeated because of its importance. And each point he makes emphasizes that it was through Yahweh's initiation that this all happened. He wants them to know he's not the one who made these choices. It wasn't my plan to go out and reach out to the Gentiles, all right? God made it very clear to me. It wasn't Cornelius' plan. It was God who sovereignly directed each step that was taken. He says, I'm in the city of Joppa praying. You go from chapter 10, they're making lunch, he's hungry, lunch is not ready, so he's up on the roof, and he's praying, and he goes into a trance, and I saw a vision. A certain object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. So he's seeing this vision, and the sheet is lowered down to him, and when I had fixed my gaze upon it, and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, and the wild beasts, and the crawling creatures, and the birds of the air. Now, he points out that God had first spoken to him in this trance. He adds here the wild beast. That's not in chapter 10. It's remarkable that the Spirit of God has put on the record Peter's own account. Again, in chapter 10, we have Luke's account as a historian. He's laying out what happened. Now, this is Peter's account. And it emphasizes the importance of what happened in this Roman officer's home. It's a very significant event. Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. This is an epoch-making event here. And he says, I also heard a voice. So he sees this trance. This is a multimedia presentation here, all right? He, he sees the thing. He hears the thing. A voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, Ah, uh, no way, Lord. You see, that's an oxymoron. You can't say no way and Lord, okay? <laughs> Those don't go together. You either say, yes, Lord, or you say, no way, buddy, you know, because, you know, if he's a Lord, then you do what he says, but that's what, you know, no way, Lord, by no means, I've never, he's getting righteous here, okay? Peter's getting righteous, Lord, I never touch anything unholy or unclean, that's never entered my mouth. Really spiritual, I'm a Jew, all right? But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. 
Like, what do you mean? Is he saying that dietary laws are being, you know, put away? I believe that this is a prolepsis. A prolepsis is talking about something that is so certain to happen, it's in the process of happening already. In other words, the dietary laws were still in effect at this time, but he's telling Peter, listen, this is ending. The church coming into being, we're not having any of this stuff. All right? You can eat what you want now. All right? He would have never thought of having a ham sandwich, but now he's like, okay, you can do that. All right? I can go out and have some bacon. Thank God the dietary laws are gone, people, okay? I don't know how you could live without bacon, all right? And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. Another three times. He's making sure you get this, Peter. Three times. He's led directly by the Spirit of God into a new truth. Peter didn't get this. Now he's getting it. And this visual aid is directing him. The other apostles, they didn't have this information. And that's why Peter's got to explain to them and try to tell them what happened. Now watch what he says. And behold, at that moment... What do you mean at that moment? Well, I'm having this vision. I had it three times. I'm waking up from the vision. All of a sudden, three men appeared before the house in which we were saying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Guess what? I just had this vision. God says, what I've cleansed, don't call it holy. And three Gentiles show up. Huh. What a coincidence, right? And the Spirit told me, go with them without misgivings. You know, you can't hang around Gentiles, but it's okay. I'm cleansed. Go with them. And these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. Now, the six brothers are brought in, I think, as a witness, making a total of seven. Peter and these guys make seven, and that number is very significant in Judaism, but it's also significant to a Roman audience. You know, Rome had a custom to authenticate a really important document that attached seven seals to it. So here we have seven witnesses as what's going to happen as this Gentile conversion takes place. So the timing here, I have the vision, Gentiles are showing up, i got to go with these Gentiles. They reported to us how he had seen the angel, so he gets to Cornelius, Cornelius is saying, look, I saw this angel standing in, in my house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, in Peter's account, we have his side of the story rather than that of Cornelius and Luke in chapter 10. And Peter furnishes with a very significant detail of the angel's message that we don't have in chapter 10. Notice the words that he adds here. He says, He shall speak words to you by which you will be saved. So he said, you go get Peter. Peter's going to give you words. All right, He's going to give you the gospel by which you will be saved. He's going to announce to you the doctrine of salvation. This reminds me of Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by what? The Word of Christ. You've got to hear the truth of the Gospel to believe it. You can't believe what you never heard and you don't understand. So the Gospel is going to come. Here in our text, we have men being saved, listen, by believing words. That's how we communicate thoughts, okay? Through words. We don't do it too well today because you know we don't even know what words mean today. But that's why you ask people, what do you mean by that? Because you never know what they're saying. He's going to speak words to you. This is so significant because what we learn here is exactly what's involved in the gospel. What is it that a person has to believe in order to be saved? This question is easily answered by going to chapter 10 and reading the message that Peter gives to Cornelius and his group. Because Peter's, he says he's going to come and he speak words by which you'll be saved. Peter goes, he speaks words, they get saved. 
So guess what? The gospel's in there. All right? That's the gospel. So let's look at Peter's words, keeping in mind this how a person's going to be saved. I don't think he's going to leave out critical issues to salvation. Okay? They're getting saved. They get saved by the end of the message. So the gospel is here. Back in chapter 10, verse 36, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Yeshua the Christ, he is Lord of all. Peter's sermon begins here, and it ends in verse 43. So you just go from 36 to 43, you got the complete gospel right there. God, he's telling us here, is a peacemaker through Yeshua the Christ. Peter lifts up Yeshua as the one through whom God makes peace with the rebellious creation. You know, the fact that Christ preached peace implies there's hostility. There's alienation between sinful man and the holy God. And most people aren't obvious, aren't aware of this at all. They don't know that. Alright? They don't understand that God's absolute holiness and His hatred of sin. Now, most people are going to admit they're not perfect. But I think most people see themselves basically good. How do you know you get to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. You know, I, you know they'll tell you how, how good of a person they really are. Because that's how people see themselves. They see themselves as basically good. And I think that many people who say they're Christians are not. Now, that's listen. please listen carefully to what I'm saying. I'm not saying someone who believes the gospel is not a Christian. If you believe the gospel, you're a Christian. But there's a lot of people who don't even know what the gospel is, but they say they're Christians, Right? Because someone told them that. For the most part, they're just religious. And I think the greatest enemy to the gospel is religion. Because if you got religion, I don't need anything else. I'm okay. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. Let me tell you the difference between religion and Christianity. All right? Religion is about what you do for God. So if you want to know if a person is religious or if they're a Christian, just ask them. If you were to die right now and go to heaven... How do you know God would let you in? What would God? And you and they'll start listing things they do. Well, I went to church. I tithe. I, you know, religion. It's about what they do. Religion is about what you do for God. Christianity is about what God has done for you. That's a difference. It's hugely different. Okay, it's about what God has done for you. Religion says if you obey, God will love you. How do you like that one? I don't like that too good. Okay? I don't like it at all. Christianity says, because God loves you, you can't obey. You see the difference there? It's huge. Should Christians obey? Absolutely. But not because we're trying to earn favor with God. It's because of what He's done for us. It's out of gratitude that we want to live and serve and function for Him. But religion says, you got to earn God's favor. you got to work your way into the right spot there. The gospel is not, if you are good, God will love you. Okay? That's not the gospel. The gospel is, you're bad. And God loves you anyway. Alright? He loves you anyway. Listen, Christ didn't die for good people. You know why? There aren't any. Okay? Romans 3.10 As it is written, there is none righteous. Now someone's going to say, well, what about me? No, not even one. Okay? Yeah, I know that someone thinks they're an exception. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none that does good. And again, no, not even one. Because someone's going to always think they're the exception to that. Christ didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. Romans 5.8 But God 
demonstrates his own love toward us. The us here is Paul and the Roman believers. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for sinners. So the beginning of the gospel is you have to understand you're a sinner. If you think you're not a sinner, then guess what? You're proud and the proud don't need God. And God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So the gospel starts with a recognition of man's sinfulness. So Peter says, Yeshua's a peacemaker. He's bringing peace to God and His alienated creation. Peter goes on to say, You know of Yeshua, of Nazareth, how God anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and power, and how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with them. So Yeshua of Nazareth tells us that Yeshua was a true man who existed in the flesh as a human being in a Galilean town, but one whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. So in Him, in Yeshua, Yahweh walked on the earth. The Lord of all had become a human like you and me, apart from sin. And we are witnesses of all the things He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they also put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. Okay? Yeshua was put to death through crucifixion. That's part of the Gospel. But that goes on. God raised Him up on the third day and granted that He should become visible. Yeshua was alive. Listen, Rome did everything they could to destroy Him. They put Him to death. The power of Rome was crucifixion. The power of God is resurrection. It doesn't matter what the state does you. It doesn't matter what anybody does you. If you're a Christian, God's power overcomes it. He's alive. He's alive because God did not abandon His peacemaker in death. He raised Him from the dead. He vindicated Him and gave Him a name above every name. The resurrection becomes the heart of apostolic preaching. The heart of the Gospel. The heart of the good news. That's what they're preaching. They're preaching the death of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. If you read this sermon, you know something's missing here. Okay? You pick up one of the Gospel, pick up a Gospel tracts, the four spiritual laws. You know what the first law is? Anybody know? Huh? No? First law, God loves you. God loves you. Here's what's interesting. Think about this. In the book of Acts, we have the apostles, the evangelistic efforts of the apostles. They're reaching out with the gospel. Not one time in the book of Acts does it ever mention the love of God. It's not mentioned. They didn't go out to people and say, smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They said, no, you're under the damnation of God and if you don't turn to Christ, you'll suffer for eternity. No, that, I mean, they preached the gospel, but it didn't involve the love of God. They never preached that. But that's the main thing you hear today. That's the first, that's where everybody gets. Do you know God loves you? How do you know that? Does He love everybody? Doesn't seem to. That doesn't seem to be what the scripture said. But he's preaching the good news, and the good news is about a peacemaker who died to pay our sin debt and was raised from the dead. Of him, the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Through his name. It doesn't mean Yeshua, if you just believe in that name, you're gonna, everything's gonna be alright. The name refers to his character, his attributes, all that he is. Forgiveness is only through Yeshua. According to this verse, what do you have to do to receive the forgiveness? Believe in Him. That's it. Oh, He forgot about repent, confess, 
be baptized, join the church. He forgot all them other... He just says, listen, everyone who believes in Christ receives forgiveness. Now, to believe in Yeshua means that I believe He is Lord who gave Himself on the cross for my sin debt. He didn't have any sin because He was righteous. He died for my sin. I believe the promise of God that whoever believes on Him receives eternal life as God's gift. Not based on human merit, but only on God's free grace. To believe in Yeshua means that I no longer rely on anything in myself to commend myself to God. It's abandoning of self-trust. He wants us to believe in Him, not ourselves. But most people believe, I think I can do it. I think I'm good enough. I think, I, you know. And the Catholic Church will say, Christ died for your sins. Not for all of them, because you've got to help out a little bit. Okay, you've got to add your works merit to the thing. And if His work's not enough, people, we're doomed. Okay? Because we've got nothing to add to it. It's, I trust only in what Yeshua did on the cross for me. Our, the only way we'll ever be forgiven is faith in Him and what He did for us. That's Peter's message. And that's the Gospel. Plain and simple. Anything You see anything in Peter's message, like we said, about works, about baptism, about repentance. No, it's just all about faith. Believe. Here's what God did for you. Trust Him. Put your trust in what He has done. The Gospel's not about what I do. It's about what Yeshua has done for me. The Gospel's not about my works. It's about His. And someone will come along and say, yes, but you have to obey. You know what I do? I tell them I did. I obeyed perfectly the whole law. I've obeyed it. All of it. Let me show you. Romans 5, 18 and 19. These are my favorite verses in all Scripture. So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam. Adam's transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. All men were condemned because of Adam's sin. Well, there's another side. Even so, through the act of one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to all. So, Adam condemned us. Christ offers justification for those who trust in Him. I love verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Because of Adam, we became sinners, right? Now, get the second half. And this is, a, this is what you have to memorize, okay? Even so... Through the obedience of the one, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. So, I can say I kept the law because I kept it in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm righteous as Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ. But you don't have Christ's righteousness. You have self-righteousness and you're condemned. Alright? Through the obedience of the one. Christ's obedience is what brings us into the presence of God. He accepts Yeshua's sinless life and a substitution to death on my behalf. Now, I think it's simple, but we have people out there saying, well, wait a minute, not so easy. We don't want to just have you take this easy salvation thing. Yeah, easy grace, easy believism, whatever they want to call it. And we have a, a branch within Christianity called Lordship Salvation, and they've redefined faith. So faith is more than just believing. Now, I think the Bible's clear. We read Peter's sermon, believing. We did this when we went in Acts 15. The same thing. you got to believe. You don't have to do anything else. But, but the Lordship people want to add surrender. Yeah, I can't sing that hymn. I surrender all. How many of you can sing that? You can sing it with boldness. I surrender. And I'm thinking, oh my word, get a hymn we can sing for crying out loud. I surrender a little bit. You know, I mean, that one might be more appropriate, but I mean, 
What a joke. Who has surrendered all? Apostle Paul, maybe. You know, I don't think too many of us. You know, it's surrender. It's commitment. It's submission. It's repentance. It's baptism. It's sacrifice. All these different, and depending on who you talk to, they add different things. They really do. These additions are both linguistically invalid and biblically invalid. Faith is believing. It's trusting in what Christ has done. So is repentance necessary for salvation? I mean, so many people argue that repentance is. All right? Well, let me tell you something interesting. We're studying Gospel of John. Gospel of John says the reason he's writing, these are written so you may believe Yeshua is the Christ, and believing you might have life through his name. So John writes specifically to bring people to faith in Christ. And in the Gospel of John, not once does he mention repentance. That's kind of strange if you need it. I'm thinking, John, you really messed up. You wrote a book about how to be saved, forgot to be tell how to be saved, in the book that wrote about how to be saved. It's ridiculous. I was reading a commentary. Here's what a lordship writer says. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at answering the basic question, what must I do to be saved? That's what we're looking at. Same question, we get different answers though. We have looked at God's word and have seen that one must be saved, there must be faith. Okay, so far I agree with them. You've got to be saved, you've got to believe in faith. According to many passages, like Romans 10, 17, Hebrews eleven six. last week we looked at a step of confession, at the step of, oh, wait a minute, so there's other steps? Start out with faith, but then I've got to do other things? He says Romans 10, 9 gives us the importance of confession as a step to salvation. So now it's not, you know, salvation is not an event, it's a process. All right, we're going through a process. He says, for these last two messages, we can see that faith alone is not what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. Really? Not faith alone. See, now they're adding to it. This becomes religion. You're adding to what you have to do in order to be saved. He says, faith is the first step in the process. You got it, it's a process going on. Today, we're going to look at the third step. I'm like, how many steps are there? That step is repentance. So he's, you know, I don't know how many steps we got in this thing, but I just want to bring out the repentance here. He says, after we look at some of the passages on repentance, you will see that it's an essential step to salvation, no more, no less important than faith and confession. So according to this preacher, confession and repentance are necessary parts of salvation. There's steps in leading you towards the direction of salvation. Now, if you don't get to the next step, maybe you, I guess you don't make it, because you've got to get all the steps in, and then you'll be saved. Another writer says this, without repentance, there is no salvation. Again, John really messed up. It's important to know all about repentance. We need to know what repentance is, so we may not be mistaken. It's important to know what repentance is, so we might be brought about in our lives. Repentance is one thing that man does which affects heaven. Hmm. Yeah, that's really, you know, and he, and he defines what he means by repentance because there's a, di- there's a difference in Scripture between etymology and usage. I think you're all aware of this, okay, hermeneutics. You have etymology, a dictionary definition of a word, you have usage, how the authors use the word. Alright, so you have to determine when you're reading a thing, is he using the dictionary definition? Like us, you know, we, we use words that they're not defined that way at all. We've redefined words. They mean different things now. So we've got to figure out how he's using them. He says, all must turn from a life of sin. 
to a life of righteousness. Listen. Oh my word. If you want to be saved, you've got to turn from all your sin to righteousness. How long does this process take? Will I ever be saved? And what is my assurance in this process? My assurance is I turn around and look at my good works and I say, you must be saved because look how good I am. Wow. That's a bad situation to be in, people. You know? Because if you're looking at your assurance or you're looking at your works and getting assurance from them, you got a problem, okay? Usually works are going to cause you fear and consternation, not assurance, all right? But you got to have, you got to turn from a life of sin and you got to turn over to life. In other words, you stop all your sin, you live a holy rights life, then you get saved. I guess I don't need salvation then. I'm already good, okay? I've taken care of everything. See, if what these men are saying is true, Peter messed up. John messed up, okay? Because, again, they don't add these things to the gospel. Peter didn't add any of this stuff. And if this is essential, how can he mention this? And listen, he was told, these are words by which you'll be saved. And the Gentiles got saved, but he left out all these things. He didn't talk about confession. He didn't talk about surrender and all. He didn't talk about repentance. He didn't talk about any of those things. Religion is about what you do for God. And there's here, here, this guy's saying, this is what you got to do. You got to do these things. And you do all these things, God will accept you. Well, I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. Verse 15. And as I began to speak, Peter's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did on us, us Jews, at the beginning. Us Jews were saved. Guess what? They're getting saved the exact same way. And listen, you don't have to just count on Peter because he's got six other Jewish brethren there to verify the fact. Seven witnesses, yes, this happened. The gospel, they heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. He says, and I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Amazing. He said, John did the water thing, okay? They're baptized, immersed by the Holy Spirit into Christ. The words of our Lord, the words here are words of our Lord quoted from Acts 1.5 um, where He taught, lot, many people thought that when He said this in Acts 1.5 He's referring only to the apostles. But it's evident that Peter believed there's a promise made to all Christians. All who, you know, Jew or Gentile should believe in Yeshua. Therefore, when He saw the Holy Spirit fell on those Gentiles, He considered a fulfillment of our Lord's promise. He considered a fulfillment you, that is, all who believe on me shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. They were baptized. He didn't even finish his sermon. Go read it. Acts 10. He didn't finish it. He didn't get to the invitation. Okay? They didn't even start playing just as I am yet. And the whole place got saved. It was amazing. Well, Peter ended up his defense by pointing out the fact that the salvation of Cornelius and other Gentiles was God's doing. He says, if God therefore gave to them the same gift as He gave to us, the Jews and the Gentiles, after believing in the Lord Yeshua the Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? In other words, what am I going to do? God's doing this. Alright? They believed. They received. Notice again, Peter identified believing in the Lord Yeshua the Christ as the only necessary prerequisite for salvation. That's just believing. So Peter's made it clear that the initiative was God's each step of the way. God put him in a trance, showed him this new thing. God sent an angel to Cornelius, go call for Peter. They got together, preached the gospel. 
they became Christians. Peter says, this is all about God. I didn't have to do anything. I'm just doing, following along with what He told me. He sovereignly saved the Gentiles. He sent the Holy Spirit upon them. Like I said, before He even finished His sermon. Now, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to include this story twice. So that the Jewish believers especially would get it, okay? Matter of fact, there's, he, he repeats a couple of it, couple parts of it three times. So he's not trying to get this in the Jews' head. Here's what's happening, guys. Gentiles are getting saved just exactly like you got saved. Verse 18 says, And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So the facts, the divinely given interpretation of the apostles' application, they proved convincing. The critics quiet down. They're not arguing anymore. They said, all right, this is great. This is of God. Now notice what Peter says. God's granted to the Gentiles. Repent. See, people say, yeah, see, I told you, repentance is important. You've got to do it, right? It's got to be part of it. Well, Peter didn't mention it in the message. He didn't say you had to repent. He just says God granted them repentance. What does he mean? Well, again, we have to look at the word repentance, metanoia. What does he mean here? Now, the main words in the Greek New Testament for repentance are the noun metanoia and the verb metanoia, or repent. Now, originally, these Greek words, the etymology is change your mind. That's what repentance means. It means to change the mind. That's the etymology. But repentance is used most often in Scripture to mean turn from sin to God. And it's usually used for Jews, because the Jews knew God, and you have to turn back to God. But, I think he uses it here in the etymological use of it, the Gentiles changed their mind. They didn't believe in Christ. Now they do. That's a change of mind. So if you want to argue that repentance is necessary for salvation, if you want to take the dictionary definition and mean change the mind, I'd agree with you. Okay, you've got to change your mind. Because you got to believe in Christ. And you didn't believe, so you change your mind. You believe in Christ. I think that's part of it. But most people use repentance as to turn from sin. All right? And if that's, you know, and I've heard so many people say, well, you can't be a Christian because you do this. <laughs> Who can be a Christian then is my question. You know? Because people will always look at things, sins, that they feel are bad sins. Okay? You're an adulterer. You can't be a Christian. I'm a chronic liar, but it's okay for me. You know, because I don't view lying as bad as I view adultery. And that's what, that's what they draw the line under themselves, you know? Or I'm a gossiper, I'm a whatever. You know, we, we put the heinous sins down there and those people can't be saved. You know? But, you know, less things what we consider less sins, we know that we do, and so we figure that must be okay. God must overlook those. God granted the Gentiles the change of mind. They now believe in Yeshua. He has granted it to them. The apostles and many of the supporters have now gained a new understanding of what's involved towards bringing Gentiles into salvation. All they have to do is trust in Christ. They're genuinely rejoicing in this new work of God and it's just exciting. Now they get it. Okay, yes, the Gentiles are on equal footing with us. It's quite significant that this story of Gentile salvation, again, is repeated twice. And in addition to that, Cornelius describes his own vision when Peter first arrived at his house in Acts 10, 30-33. So that means certain events are described three times in two chapters. It's a very important event to God. It takes time to repeat the message three times. Get it. Pay attention to it. This is how the Because all the Jews thought Gentiles had to do something to get in there. Circumcision, keeping the law, whatever. They had something they had to do. 
And he's saying, no, these guys are on equal footing with us, and all they had to do is believe. Now, the main thing I want you to see in this text is that Yahweh told Cornelius through an angel to send Peter who would speak words to you by which you will be saved. So clearly, Peter's message in Acts 10 is the gospel, the whole gospel, nothing but the gospel. There's nothing else needed for salvation but faith in Christ. And again, this is not an isolated text, people. All right? Christianity is about what God has done. And that's the gospel. Here's what God has done for you. Trust it. Believe it. These Gentiles didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to repent of being Gentiles. They didn't have to go get circumcised on the spot. Wait, stop. Let's go get baptized on the spot so it'll take, no, you know, take up a tithe, join the church. They didn't do any of that stuff. They just sat there. They heard the word. They believed it. The Holy Spirit fell upon them, brought them into the church. They believed what God had done for them and they were saved because salvation is about faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. Now, the sad thing is, many people add things to the work of Christ. In other words, there's things you have to add. And many people just put this on themselves. Ah, well, I have to do this or do that to earn God's favor. Listen, you have to understand your union with Christ, okay? When you trust Him, He brought you into union with Himself. You are joined to Christ. You are as righteous as Christ is righteous because you share His righteousness. There's nothing you have to do to earn God's favor. All right. Now, should we live for Christ? Absolutely. Should we obey? Absolutely. But we do that not to earn the favor of God. We do that because we have the favor of God. Now, let me tell you something. God didn't make up things, make up sins just because He wanted to, you know, not have us not have any fun. All right. If you abide by the laws that the Lord has laid out, your life is so much easier. You know, it's so much less trouble in your life. I see so many Christians living unrighteous lives and their lives are miserable. I'm like, dude, you know, the Scriptures are clear. Here's what you're supposed to do. Live for the Lord. Things are a whole lot better. doesn't mean your circumstances. I'm not talking about health wealth, that's for sure. You know, you might still be miserable circumstances, but guess what? You can deal with it. Because when in fellowship with God, you can go through anything. I think Paul so clearly demonstrated that. If you can be beat, you know, to the point of death and locked in an inner prison and you sit there and say, hey, Let's sing together, you know. And they could have sung I Surrender All at that point, all right? They were doing that. They could have sung that. But there's not too many people that could have sing that. But they had surrendered it to Christ, and they were worshiping in the worst circumstances because they were in fellowship with God. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. Lord, I pray you'd help us to realize from the depth of who we are, what salvation is about. It's about your works that you have performed for us. And all you ask is that we trust in what you have done. Lord, thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. Help us not to clutter it up. Help us not to add all our junk onto it. Help us just allow it to speak for what it says. I thank you for this account, Lord, for these Gentiles who as they sit there, sat there and listened to the words of Peter, trusted you and were saved. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.